1: This is New Books in Political Science. My name is Heath Brown, and today I'll be speaking with Andre Gillespie, the author of The New Black Politician, Cory Booker, Newark, and Post Racial America. I hope you enjoy today's interview. Welcome, Andre Gillespie, to New Books in Political Science. Thank you. It's a real pleasure to have read uh, your book, um, and I look forward to talking to you um, about it. Uh, before we get to the meat of the book, Maybe you can just, uh, you know, tell us a little bit about who you are, where you've been, and where you are now.
0: So I am uh, an associate professor of political science at Emory University. I am a PhD graduate of Yale University, and that's part of the reason why I ended up writing this book. I uh, met Cory Booker in 2001 when I was getting ready to write my dissertation perspective on minority voter mobilization. Uh, Cory came to give a talk. Um, at Yale Law School, where he mentioned that he canvassed, and that was the uh, the core of, uh, of my dissertation. So I started talking to him about canvassing afterwards, at which point he told me he would be running for mayor the next year. And the next thing I knew, I was asking if I could come to Newark to run a voting experiment. And hence, I ended up in Newark in 2002, witnessed that campaign against Sharp James. And the idea for the book started to germinate, but it took about four years before I realized what exactly I would be doing and that I would be writing a book.
1: Yeah, it's, you know, so the the story that you tell, and you tell it in such a uh, uh, narratively approachable way, and that covers sort of this 10-year this, uh, or so time period, but your direct involvement in it really gives it this flavor of, of uh, closeness, I think, that um, makes it a very interesting book, not just for academics, but um, I don't know if you uh, feel like you've reached outside of the academy, but it sure does feel like the kind of book that people outside could read. Have you had any conversations with people who are not in the field of political science about the book?
0: Um, certainly. I mean, in terms of talking with reporters and, and, and doing interviews like this, um, you know, it was my hope and it's always my goal for uh, my scholarship to be accessible to people. Um, and so I want to be able to write something that can be meaningful to an academic audience, but that is readable and approachable enough that uh, people outside can gain some insights from it and actually be able to enjoy the work as well.
1: Yeah, I think that's. I think you've um, you've met that ambition in a in a real interesting way. So let's let's talk about the book itself. Um, in the start of the book, you use this quote from former Newark Mayor Kenneth Gibson, and he said, uh, "Wherever America's cities are going, Newark will get there first. You use, you use this to justify your case study as in some ways generalizable. Mm-hmm. Um, so before we get to your uh, evidence. And you sort of allude to it uh, just a a moment ago. How did you choose Newark to study over other cities with similar trajectories?
0: So there are actually very few cities that have the profile of Newark. And so the type of of city that would be ideal for this kind of study would be a city with a long history of African-American mayoral leadership um, and consistent African-American mayoral leadership. So Newark has had a black mayor for almost 43 years now um and it is similar to only three other cities in the United States so Washington DC has had a black mayor for more than 35 years Atlanta has had a black mayor for almost 40 years now um and Detroit um has had um a, a, a black mayor for more than 40 years now so there are very few cities where you can actually sort of test What happens when you've had long-term African-American leadership and when you've had the emergence of a new vanguard of young black leader trying to challenge the older black establishment for power? So that's part of the uh, justification of looking at a city like Newark. How I ended up in Newark, you know, was completely random and by happenstance, but it's the type of, of place that lent itself well to this type of discussion. And so in political science, people are often talking about convenient samples and other kinds of things. And I got a little bit of pushback uh, for picking a place like Newark, but picking a city like Newark to do the study in is very different than, say, picking black politics in, in Wichita, Kansas, which doesn't have the same history. And so this was a completely justifiable choice. Um And frankly, in, in a discipline where we've seen Um, More than enough studies of Boston, New Haven, Chicago, and Oakland, you know, I think we need to be really honest about how we usually pick our cases. Most of the time, there is some element of convenience that is involved in in, in picking our case sites. I think mine was perfectly justified if I had picked another type of city to, uh, to do this work in. You know, I could see getting pushed back, but I think in my case, it was perfectly justified.
1: Yeah, well, at Seton Hall, we love Newark, so anytime someone studies it and we have the chance to read about it, we like it. So uh, in New Jersey, we, we, we like that a lot. So one of the things that um, you do in the book is you build a theoretical argument that you refer to as elite displacement. Um, what does this theory help you to do in the book? What is the way in which this theoretical side to the book um, help you explain the, the evidence that, that you collect?
0: So the main question that's kind of driving my research is whether or not the decisions that young black politicians make in terms of challenging um, and trying to unsee older black politicians has consequences for future elections or consequences for subsequent governance. Um, and so I really want to get at this question that older black leaders have failed in their responsibilities to improve the communities um, that they started to lead and that there's a younger, better educated, more qualified group of young politicians who are waiting in the wings who who should be allowed to take over. Um, and so I developed the term elite displacement to describe the process by which young, ambitious, black politicians with few demonstrable ties to the black political establishment try to supplant Older, more established Black politicians, um, and elite displacement involves taking advantage of the outsider status to uh, gain sympathy in mainstream media circles, to uh, garner uh, volunteer and uh, and financial support from outside of the city or outside of the black political community and an attempt to try to overwhelm the um, established black politicians. Mm-hmm. The other part of elite displacement that I think is actually really interesting is when you see younger black politicians really taking advantage of stereotypes that persist about African-American leaders. Um, and using um, those stereotypes to try to position themselves as being um, anti-stereotypical or counter-stereotypical and thus to elicit greater support from the outside community such that they can get more money, more volunteers, more earned media attention. And so I argue in the book that elite displacement is a very effective strategy, but that people who use it need to consider both the positive and the negative externalities of using it. And so while it might be great to get media attention, Young black politicians need to consider that they may actually be um, inadvertently reinforcing certain stereotypes about African-Americans that could actually come back to haunt them later. And it's the type of thing that can really and unnecessarily um, engender a lot of tension between older black political leaders, some of whom you're going to need for institutional memory once you actually come into positions of power.
1: Yeah, and and this all sort of brings us to the complex case of of Cory Booker, the the focus of your book. So, how would you describe his background prior to his rival in in Newark in the nineteen nineties? What what came before? His uh, very rapid emergence in the city.
0: So school, for, uh, for lack of a better term. So Cory Booker uh, was born in Washington, D.C., was raised in Harrington Park, New Jersey, in Bergen County. It really is without traffic only about 30 minutes away from Newark, but in many instances, it's just a world apart. So he grew up in a majority white community. He grew up in a stable, loving home with two parents who were executives at IBM. He um, didn't want for anything physically he was educated in good schools. he was educated um, you know in a community that didn't have the problems that a lot of urban communities were facing in the 1970s and 1980s and he thrived in it. Um, he won a football scholarship to Stanford University. He played football at Stanford for a couple of years, excelled academically, won a Rhodes Scholarship, um, got a master's degree from Oxford, and then went to Yale Law School. So you're looking at sort of the pinnacle of academic achievement. Cory Booker has been there, done that, and has done everything. Um, while he was at Yale Law School, he uh, developed um, an interest in public interest law. And he um, moved to Newark um, while he was still a law student at, at, at Yale and started to uh, work in clinics. And eventually, once he graduated, won a, um, a public interest law fellowship that um, would allow him to do tenants' rights law um, and would actually free up time for him to, to be able to run for office. And so, um, you know, there's some conflicting sort of um, uh, stories about how this happened, but in, in 1998, Booker challenged um, a a four-term incumbent on Newark City Council in the Central Ward, a a man by the name of George Branch, for um, the city council seat. So if you put somebody like Cory Booker, the Yale Law School educated former Rhodes scholar next to George Branch, somebody who didn't have the same educational opportunities, you could see that there would be a nice sharp contrast. And and Booker ended up winning that race um, in a runoff. Election. He comes on city council and uh, immediately there were lots of people who were aligned with Sharp James who saw him as a threat and saw him as somebody who was ambitious and wanted to be mayor. And so his reception on city council was actually somewhat hostile to be quite honest. And, and so he had a, a lot of trouble being able to form alliances and get his initiatives passed on city council. He, um, as a result of that, decided that he wasn't incorporated enough as a member of city council to really make a change. The best thing that he could do would be to run for mayor, and so he challenged Sharp James um, as mayor in 2002. He was 32 years old at the time, um, and he's going to turn 33 over the course of that campaign. And Sharp James was twice his age, uh, and Sharp James had, had served for... 16 years as a member of city council, and at that point, 16 years as mayor. And so there were a lot of people who thought that, one, Booker had been very instrumental in terms of his entire political career, and it comes to Newark with the express purpose of trying to run to be mayor of the city. But then there were also people who thought that he had kind of come out of term. He was very young. He's, you know, less than five years out of, of, of law school and he is um also a relatively new member on the city council and so there are people who thought he should have waited a little bit longer before he ran and so the 2002 campaign became this really vitriolic campaign it was the most expensive municipal race in New Jersey uh history to date um and a, a lot of the the rhetoric around the race uh focused on racial authenticity So Sharp James uh, and his um, surrogates made the charge that Booker wasn't black enough to leave the city of Newark. Um, And when the race came down, it was a close race for Sharp James. Sharp James was a person who was used to winning by wide margins. He uh, was used to, in some cases, running unopposed. He, uh, Booker came with about seven points of beating of, 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 of him in 2002. So that was actually a relatively close race, even though by most political science standards, we wouldn't call that a close race. Um, and, um, you know, in particular, if we look at sort of the geographic breakdown of the vote, Shubh James lost two wards. He lost the North Ward um, and the East Ward. So those are the majority uh, Latino and the majority Portuguese wards in the city. And Sharp James beat Booker in the uh, parts of the parts of Newark that are considered historically black, um, and so it's with that environment that Corey goes into the 2006 race. It's very clear he's going to run again. It's not quite clear whether or not Sharp James is going to run again. Um, and he makes some efforts to reach out and to reconcile with members of the black political elite. Uh, there um, is some fracturing of relationships between Sharp James and Latinos um, during uh, the interval period between 2002 and 2006, but he keeps on raising money. He starts a nonprofit. He builds his, his, his national media profile, and the juggernaut is just too big for, for Sharp James to go against, so Sharp James chooses at the last minute to bow out. Um, in 2006, leaving Deputy Mayor um, Ron Rice Sr., who was a state senator, um, to run against him with virtually no money. Um, Booker and his team outspent Rice and his team by um, tw- a margin of 25 to 1. Even Ron Rice Sr.'s son was running on Booker's ticket for the Westward Council. So, I mean, it was just a really lopsided race, and Booker was actually able to coast to victory very easily.
1: Yeah, much of your... So some of the book is sort of based around these two elections, but in, a, in another way the book is a lot about um, change and and sort of how the establishment deals with change. I, I had the pleasure to work for Congressman Donald Payne in Washington when I was just out of college, and in addition to being an alum of Seton Hall University, he served the city of Newark for a long time before his recent recent passing. Mm-hmm. And in the book, you, you describe this kind of this tenuous relationship between Cory Booker and the Payne family. And I think it's, it's very indicative of, of how he's sort of uh, stepping into situations and, and sometimes they work, sometimes they, they don't work. And so I wonder if you talk a little bit about how the two interacted, that is, Cory Booker and, and the, the different generations of the Payne family interacted at, at different points and when it worked and when the relationship didn't work so well.
0: So I'm going to make the assumption that not all of your audience lives in Metro Newark or, or in Metro New York. So for those outside, New Jersey is a place that it, it, uh, where political machines actually still dominate. And so oftentimes in the city of Newark, when we're talking about political machines, there are certain small number of families that have been very politically influential in the city of Newark. So you're looking at the Rice family, the Payne family, the Sharif family, the Autobodio family. Um, and people who choose to associate with them. And so part of the charge of anybody who aspires to be a transformational leader in a city of Newark, you have to learn to work with those families and risk being co-opted by them, or you have to completely supplant them. And so the story of Newark is actually really interesting, is that those families actually are still very, very prominent um, in politics today, despite Booker's ascension. Um, and so that actually is an interesting thing that Booker has to contend with these families. Um, the Sharif family at one point was actually helping Booker um, get elected and so this is a family that until recently really hasn't held political office, but they've usually been the behind-the-scenes strategist for a number of races, including Cory Booker's 98, 2002, and 2006 wins. Um, the son in the family who now holds political office, Jaron Sharif, who's a uh, Central Ward City Councilman, broke with the Booker machine and so the, the Booker's and the, and the Sharifs actually um, have not been aligned uh, together for the last three or four years. Um, the Payne family uh, controlled black votes in the South Ward, um, in Newark in particular, and they've been aligned with the Adubato family. So Steve Adubato, who uh, is uh, the, all intents and purposes the political boss of the North Ward, is a social worker who runs a very, very prominent social service outfit in the North Ward in Newark that includes a senior center and a charter school and, and lots of other social services, and so those two families have been aligned with one another, and so they have controlled county government. So you're usually seen an ally of Adubato who was in charge of, um, you know, who's the county executive, so and Joseph DiVincenzo, and then the uh, Essex County uh, Democratic Party chair is a member of the Payne family, and the Payne family had uh, state assemblymen who were also part of their family and other operatives. So in 2006 in particular, uh, when Cory Booker had an opening on his slate for an at-large council seat and he didn't already have somebody who was running with him on his seat, he interviewed a number of people to, to kind of serve in that seat, including Raz Baraka, the son of Amiri Baraka, also a very important um, left family politically to, to contend with in the city of Newark. He ended up choosing Donald Payne Jr., the late congressman's son and actually now the current congressman. Um, in part because he was a better fit for the team than some of the other people like Raz Baraka or Bessie Walker or Dale Hill, Jenkins. Jenkins um, and so uh, that relationship has always been somewhat tenuous uh, Payne, all of them have their own names on which they can run and so helping Booker actually helps them but the Payne's actually help Booker as well and so that, that alliance was mutually beneficial but there have been instances where the Booker's and the Paynes have actually, uh, broken ranks. And so, uh, we could look at a 2007 race where the Bookers or the Audubonos and the Paynes actually split on who to support for, uh, for, for the State Senate. So Steve Audubon wanted to put up Teresa Ruiz as the, uh, State Senate nominee to replace Sharp James when he, uh, chose to resign, um, or to not seek, uh, another term in office and, uh, William Payne, who was uh, the late Congressman Donald Payne's brother, uh, really wanted that seat, and so there was a huge rift between the the Payne and the Adubato families on that issue. Booker sided with Adubato, supported Teresa Ruiz. Um, in that particular seat, and she ended up winning. Um, and then the Payne family has also sort of uh, sometimes opposed Booker on substantive issues. So the Payne family ended up opposing uh, Mayor Booker's uh, Municipal Utility Authority plans to try to um, uh, come up with a new revenue funding stream using the city's water authority um, to be able to do that. So we've seen instances where they haven't actually been perfectly aligned with one another. And I would argue as I do in the book, um, and there are more recent developments that I think more is that it actually shows the resiliency of the old political establishment, the old ethnic political establishment that predates Cory Booker and actually most of us who are under the age of 40 in the city.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah, and, uh, you know, just sort of putting this together, and, you know, some of, from a distance, some of the names sort of are lost, but, you know, the, the closer you get, the more these pieces start to you know, fit together in such an interesting way. So you you mentioned that sort of he he loses in 2002 and wins in 2006. Is this more a case of of the city of Newark changing or Cory Booker changing? Um, Is this him learning some political lessons that he may have been um, uh, naive to in the earlier race? Or or is the city undergoing a change in a way that just makes his candidacy more possible in the later election?
0: It's a little bit of both. I mean, Booker definitely does learn some things um, after the 2002 loss, and you can see in his willingness to kind of reach out to folks who would have actually been amenable to him. So, um, in particular, he always had a more cordial relationship with uh, the late city councilman and former Assemblyman um, Donald Tucker than other members of council, and so he, you know, aligns with him, really deepens that friendship after paying. Guys, uh, he actually um, endorsed his wife um, for the state assembly seat that he once held. Uh, So you can see that there was some savvy that was definitely going on there. There was definitely some savvy in making sure that. He was sensitive to the cultural concerns of African-American New Workers. So in particular, there were people who didn't always like the fact that they didn't see African Americans in positions of prominence uh, in his campaign. And so the difference between 2002 and 2006 is that you see more African Americans in, in, in very, very prominent places. Um I mean, I can tell you a story. I am African-American. I remember one time dealing with one of his campaign aides who didn't know me. And he uh, and I told him I was coming in. Told him you know what the project was about and that I was going to be canvassing as part of uh, my my methodology, which is participant observation. And and I knew I'd already heard from people that they usually sent out of town visitors into the north or the east ward because people might be more welcome there or less likely to get heckled. And I very quickly let. Uh, this campaign worker know that, hey, um, I'm black, so if you want to send me to the central, south, or west wards, that's okay. Um, and then he was mm-hmm. like, okay, so you know the city of Newark. It was like, yeah, I've kind of been hanging out here for four years. So. Right. Um, so yeah, I know, but I know that this is kind of what you're thinking. And so there was definitely a greater sensitivity to it in 2006. Um, you know, people talk about demographic changes in the city, and you know, the city is definitely undergoing a demographic change. Um, so, um, for the last uh, two censuses the city has been has had a, a small African American majority in that blacks make up about fifty two percent of 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 the city of Newark and we see a growing Latino population in the city. You know, those changes are likely to continue and so we could very well be looking by the 2020 census out of Newark where blacks make up the plurality and not the majority of residents in the city. And so you can definitely see those changes happening in the city, but at the same time I don't necessarily think that it's the demographic change that ushers Booker in. I think for, you know, the mood, and I talked with a friend who, um, you know, I often talk with about these things, who was coming into the city and working and doing other kinds of things. It was just her educated guest, was that by 2006, people knew who Booker was um, to a greater degree than they did in 2002. And so he didn't quite look at, like the newcomer that he did in, in 2002. And so people were more willing to trust him. And mm-hmm. also just, I mean, you can't discount sort of the the impact of, of, of money and organization. Ronald Rice Sr. had six weeks to campaign um, because Sharp James <laughs> refused to get out of the race soon enough mm-hmm. and no money. And so under those circumstances, it would have been very, very impossible for Ron Rice Jr., uh, Sr., excuse me, to be able to win. Um, you know, you can also argue that uh, Ron Rice Sr.'s campaign style might not have lented so well to being able to win um, a race. He's, he's notorious for not being handled um, and for uh, doing things his own way, and sometimes those don't always fall into the lines of what we would consider uh, our campaign strategy. Right. Um, but, you know, it's one of those things where he had would have had an uphill battle. There's just no way that you could do what Booker and his team were able to do on a budget of $150,000 when the opposition has $6 million. Like Like, right. you, you just can't do it. So, I mean, I think it was greater familiarity. I think he made some really savvy moves to not alienate himself, Booker. That is completely from the African-American community. And I think by 2006, people were ready to accept him as... Uh, the change and re- re- ready to accept him as the successor to Sharp James in ways that they weren't four years earlier.
1: Yeah, and is the is the state now ready to accept Cory Booker? Has he, uh, he's sort of on his way out, which which sort of begs two questions. One is, you know, what is what is his future hold, and also what is the future of Newark hold? Right. Um, has he built uh, an infrastructure that he will leave behind, whether he wins its statewide race or, or not? Um, is there, as he groom someone, um, or are we going to see one of these established families regain the, uh, the, this position that they sort of, they didn't give up exactly, but they you know, a newcomer came in.
0: Right. So, I mean, you know, that's sort of the test of sort of whether or not Booker's leadership has been transformational. If we look at who the leading contenders are to succeed Booker um, in 2014, um, it doesn't look like, it looks like a younger version of the parents. And some of them actually have what we would consider sort of more progressive or quote unquote post-racial politics, um, than their parents did. But when the names come up of the people who appear to want to be mayor, the names that you'll hear are Ron Rice Jr. or John James, Sharp James' oldest son, um, or Raz Baraka or Darren Sharif or Anibal Ramos. Um, and so of those four of, of, of the five are um, the sons of prominent activists or politicians. And so in that respect, it looks like the old machines, the old politics where families are very play a very, very influential role in newer politics hasn't changed that much. And so in that respect, I'd argue that Booker's not particularly transformational. Um, there is, and I talk about this a little bit in my book, some concern also that Booker has been able to draw a lot of attention, very positive attention, and actually uh, a lot of philanthropic dollars to Newark on the force of his personality. But because people are attached to Newark, or uh, attached to Cory and are really drawn to Corey, I think it becomes a question of whether or not they will maintain their commitment to Newark once he's no longer mayor of the city. Um, and so... If I were in Booker's position, I would probably be trying to shore up those public-private partnerships to make sure that they develop a connection with people in Newark, with the organizations in Newark, with the social service agencies that are working in Newark to make sure that those relationships maintain themselves even after Booker is there. There is a fear, even by people who are, you know, are are very close to Booker and really believe in what it is that he's doing, who are concerned that there are some people who will forget to continue to donate to to, to Newark once Booker isn't in the official role of being the cheerleader for the city. At least, go ahead.
1: Yeah, I was going to say, you know, you you know, um the mayor. You know Mayor Booker. You've, you described a couple of direct encounters you have with him. Is this a concern he has? I mean, how, how, uh, aware is he of, of some of these concerns? Is it, is it a priority for him or is it a busy guy? who certainly has, has, uh, busy things ahead of him, but do you have a sense of whether, um he's he's sort of in touch with, with those concerns about his legacy?
0: You know, this is actually something that I've not talked to him personally about. So I'm not quite sure, you know, where his head is on this. You know, I, I, think I find it hard to imagine that this isn't something that he, you know, isn't thinking about. But, you know, I wish I could answer that question. It's something I've talked about with other people who are kind of closer or in the inner circle. And, you know, it's something that's registered, but... It's one of those, it's the empirical question that I can't gauge until, you know, two or five or ten years after, you know, Booker has set down as as, as mayor of Newark, uh, whether that's in two years or next year or whether that's five years from now, you know, we'll we'll wait to see.
1: Right, right. And this also does kind of bring us to your next project. Um, this book has come out and has, has uh, uh, received lots of um, praise. What's next for you? Do you have a new book project? Is it an extension of this project or are you delving into a a new area of study?
0: So um, I have new book projects out um, or that that are in the works right now. Um, And I I always say that everything is inspired by Newark because Newark is such an inspirational place. Um, And I've actually told Corey that he's my muse. Uh, (laughs) So when certain things happen, um, even if it's about other people or it's about that black politics broadly, and they go back to the fundamental questions that I started to generate in Newark when I first started to hang out there a decade ago. So, you know, I'm very interested in the consequences of using race-neutral campaign strategies broadly. Um, and so with that, Newark was a great place to write this book. Um, I've done a little bit of work on sort of who the next mayor of Newark could be. And so that will come out um, in in an edited volume later this year. Um, and there's still more work to be done there just because there were some data issues in terms of how the census is, is blocking off our voter districts. And so there's that stuff that I can actually come back to and, and, and redo once we actually have a complete data set. But, you know, I'm very interested in Booker. Um, in terms of sort of how he fares as a U.S. Senate candidate, presumably next year. You know, one of the things that's actually very interesting about this race is that, you know, for the first time, he's going to have to run against um, a, a white challenger, um, which is not something he's had to do before. So the things that he could do in contrasting himself to Sharp James um, are just not an option for him in running against Frank Lautenberg, who has a much, much different profile. Um it also would be true that should he win the Democratic nomination, he would be running against a Republican for the first time. And so even in a state like New Jersey, where, um, you know, this is a state that's definitely very friendly to Democrats, that's, that that's you know, okay. He should actually probably be fine, but it would be a question of, well, how does it look when he's not actually running against an old-style racialized black person who might be a little threatening or off-putting to non-black voters? So I'm actually very curious to see what that looks like. Uh, in general, I'm interested in de-racialization broadly. Um, as an academic discipline, we define deracialization by knowing it when we see it. So we can compare Cory Booker to, say, Jesse Jackson, Jr., and we know one of them is more racialized than the other. It's just pretty obvious to us. But we are now trying to figure out what is the best way to measure that and what's the best way to actually define what cross-racial appeal is. So um, I started doing uh, some more experimentally driven studies to actually try to really hone in on what characteristics of deracialized politicians are the ones that actually elicit support or actually could um, repel voters. And so those are more broad, more abstract. Um, you know, it, it's more mathy and more uh, scientific in in the traditional sense of the word. And less soaking and poking and hanging out with voters, which I actually would argue is equally scientific. Um, and then I've got some other projects. So you know, uh, uh, I and a co-author are working on a textbook about African American politics. Have a project that looks like it's in the works on on President Obama. And so we're going to look at some of the same um, sort of challenges in in, in talking about race uh, when you are trying to be racially transcendent at the same time by looking at the uh, first term and the first couple of months of the second term of President Obama as well.
1: Well, I hope when these, uh, it sounds like possibly three or four additional books come out, you, you will come back and talk again. Um, Andre Gillespie, I really enjoyed reading your book, The New Black Politician, Cory Booker, Newark and Post-Racial America. The book is published by NYU Press, available at their website, I assume, at Amazon.com as well.
0: Yeah.
1: Andra, thank you very much for your time today. Thank
0: you for having me.